Hi, good evening, friends. So glad to be here tonight to see all your faces, even on a kind of soggy weekend. Grateful for the rain. Um, so uh, we are, if you missed last week, um, you might not know, but we have officially kind of post-Advent, post-Christmas, when it comes to our sermonizing, we have jumped back into the sermon series we were in pre-all of, all of that, which means we are talking about First Kings, we're in First Kings, the life and times of the prophet Elijah. Josh brought us back to this study last week, and last week was kind of a, a part one of a two-part message, which I'm going to be wrapping up today. It's, it's all in First Kings chapter 20, and it's just a really long chapter with a lot going on, so we broke it up into two chunks, and, uh, and I'll be kind of finishing that out tonight, 20 verses. So that's kind of what we're looking at. Um, a couple things just to clarify before I ask us to stand to read the word is uh, just especially if you missed last week or if you just you know need a quick refresher. Um, basically what happened kind of right up to the moment where we paused last Sunday was that the Lord has basically just given uh, Ahab, King Ahab of Israel, uh, this in really impressive victory over uh, their enemies, uh, the Syrians and Ben-Hadad. But also, in, in the midst of that victory, there's a warning. And the warning is essentially that it's not over. There's going to be a return of Ben-Hadad. There's going to be a continuation of this battle, of this fight. So that Ahab and Israel need to continue to prepare themselves for that and to be ready. So that's, that kind of brings us to the moment of where we're going to pick up in verse 23. Um, so let me ask you to go ahead and please stand and we will hear God's word. One other just brief note is that as I'm doing the reading, I will, uh, I'm going to supply, there's lots of he's and him's and kind of, uh, kind of ambiguous um, identifiers in this text, and I'm going to kind of supply some of the proper nouns as I go, just to provide some extra clarity for our listening ears uh, to God's word so we kind of can feel out who's who as we're doing this reading. So hope that doesn't throw you off too much. So let's hear now God's word, First Kings chapter 20, picking up in verse 23. God's word says this. And the servants of the king of Assyria, Ben-Hadad, said to him, Their gods, the gods of Israel, are gods of the hills. And so they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And do this, remove the kings each from his post and put commanders in their places. And muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And Ben-Hadad listened to their voice and did so. Verse 26. In the spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the people of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went against them. The people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats. But the Syrians filled the country. And a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Ahab, uh, sorry, lost my place here. I was trying to read. The king of Israel, thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, the Lord is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am Lord. And they, and they encamped opposite one another seven days. Then on the seventh day, the battle was joined. And the people of Israel struck down of the Syrians 100,000 foot soldiers in one day. 
and the rest fled into the city of Aphek, and the wall fell upon 27,000 men who were left. Then Hadad also fled and entered an inner chamber in the city. And his servants said to him, Behold now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let us put sackcloth around our waists and ropes on our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. So they tied sackcloth around their waists and put ropes on their heads and went to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hadad says, Please let me live. And Ahab said, Does Ben-Hadad still live? He is my brother. Now the men were watching for a sign, and they quickly took it up from him and said, Yes, your brother Ben-Hadad. Then Ahab said, Go and bring him. And then Ben-Hadad came out to, to Ahab, and, and Ahab caused him to come up into the chariot. Ben-Hadad said to Ahab, the cities, of my father, uh, the cities that my father took from your father I will restore, and you may establish bazaars for yourself in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, I will let you go on these terms. So Ahab made a covenant with him and let him go. Verse 35, And a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his fellow, At the command of the Lord, strike me, please. But the man refused to strike him. And then he said to him, Because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you have gone out from me, a lion will strike you down. And as soon as he had departed from him, a lion met him and struck him down. Then he found another man and said, Strike me, please. And the man struck him, struck him and wounded him. So the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way, disguising himself with a bandage over his eyes. And as Ahab passed, the prophet cried to the king and said, Your servant went out into the midst of the battle, and behold, a soldier turned and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man. If by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. And as your servant was busy here and there, the man was gone. The king of Israel said to him, So shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. Then the prophet hurried to take the bandage away from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And the prophet said to Ahab, Thus says the Lord, Because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I had devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life, and your people for his people. And the king of Israel went to his house, vexed and sullen, and came to Samaria. This is God's word. Remain standing, if you can, for another moment to pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would use it now in our lives, in our hearts, in surprising ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, you may be seated. I think that's about the max number of verses any preacher should ever read for a sermon. What do you think? I'm going to say yes to my own question. Uh, so, uh, dear church friends, uh, I want to start off tonight uh, thinking about this theme, this idea of uh, assumptions, especially and particularly bad assumptions. What happens when human beings do this, right? They, they, they assume something and it goes the wrong direction. First thing I'd, I'd point out when I'm, when I'm thinking about assumptions is that I think assuming things is kind of just a natural part of life for us as human beings. Like we, we naturally, we kind of look for rhythms, we look for patterns, 
And then as we notice rhythms and patterns in our lives, we kind of predict from, from point A to, okay, this, this is probably going to go here, this is probably going to go there. And so we make some assumptions about where things are going to track and where they're going to go as we notice rhythms and, and, uh, and certain kind of patterns. You know, just two s super simple examples of this would be, you know, for example, the weather, right? Based on where you live, based on what season it is, you can kind of predict, okay, I'm going to need a sweater today, right? It's going to be wet, whatever. Also, uh, we can think about this in terms of uh, things we will often assume in our rhythm of life when it comes to our financial situation. We do budgeting. We kind of track our income. We, we try and get a handle on what taxes are like so that, you know, we can not only know where we are, but we can kind of project forward and have some sense and kind of assume what the next year is going to look like and what, what adjustments and things we need to make, right? These are, these are assumptions and, you know, they're not wrong, right? In many cases, it's, it's great to make an assumption. And yet, at times, assumptions that we make can be way off base. Sometimes, when our assumptions are really wrong, really out of whack, there can be really big consequences that go, go along with those assumptions, misguided as they might be. Historically, just thinking of one example of this this week, I thought of, you know, this is kind of a maybe low-hanging fruit, easy, easy pickings, but I, I thought of, uh, you know, the famous incident, the, the, the great ship, the Titanic, right? Uh, the famous luxury British cruise liner, uh, the RMS Titanic. By the way, I, anyone know what RMS uh, as a prefix for a ship means? I didn't either. It means Royal Mail Ship. RMS, yeah, so it's like it's delivering mail as it's sailing across the, anyway, a little bit of trivia you didn't need to know. But so the RMS Titanic, right, is, is thought to be, it's assumed to be this unsinkable ship, right, this unsinkable vessel. Tragically, we know what happens, right, its maiden voyage hits that iceberg, ends up at the bottom of the Atlantic. And the, the added tragedy in this whole story is that because they had made this assumption that the ship was unsinkable, one of the things that they did was they, they didn't put enough of what those life rafts, those lifeboats on the ship. Right? And so more lives were lost because there weren't enough lifeboats. So it's an assumption that led to an action that led to dire consequences. On a, maybe a bit of a lighter note, uh, less tragic and a little bit more personal to me, thinking back to that example of weather, uh, I think of a younger version of me uh, going away to school for the first time, going away to college. And, uh, you know, I was born and bred lifelong Californian, uh, never been anywhere else. And I end up going to school, trying to finish my, my degree uh, in, in Chicago, Moody Bible Institute. So first time for me, I'm in the Midwest, and uh, one of the things I learned very quickly is, well, a bright sunny day in October in Chicago does not mean that uh, you're going to be warm and cozy. 
like it might in California. Like I, I remember one day in particular, I, uh, I was in my dorm room, looked out the window, it looked like a beautiful day. I'm like, okay, I see the sun, it's blue sky, I'm gonna put on my, my rainbow sandals, my flip-flops, and I'm gonna go out and you know, go with some guys to CVS or whatever. As soon as I walked out the door, I knew I had made a mistake. Because like, the air was cold, my toes were freezing, I tried to push through, Needless to say, I had to turn, you know, I had to turn around, go back, put on some socks, put on some appropriate shoes. You know, it wasn't going to work. So I made a bad assumption based on my California uh, kind of upbringing about what sun in, in October would mean. Probably too many examples, right? But, but the point is, is that we make assumptions. Sometimes they're correct and helpful. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're, they're wrong, maybe even foolish. Sometimes those foolish assumptions come with consequences. They, they can be minimal or they can be more severe. You say, why, okay, what's the point? Why are we talking about this? As we come to our text today and think about 1 Kings and what we read, admittedly there is a lot going on in that passage. But it seems to me that one of the biggest things in this passage perhaps the biggest thing that I think God in his wisdom through his word is wanting to teach us and to remind us is that bad assumptions, especially when it comes to the Lord himself, who he is, what he desires, are really significant. Bad assumptions uh, matter. And I think the other thing that we see in this text ultimately is that Bad assumptions will ultimately be corrected when they are about the Lord one way or another. False notions about who God is will not ultimately be allowed to stand because God himself will interact. God himself will come and correct our misguided assumptions about who he is. Why? Because he's relational. Because he's a God of love. He wants to have relationship with his creation, with his people. And he wants us to know him for who he truly, truly is. As we look at scripture, I think that's one of the big themes of the Bible as we see it laid out. As we're kind of reading through the narrative of scripture. It's this idea that God desires relationship and he, he wants to be truly known for who he is in this world that he created. It's part of, the, part of the big plan and the big story of redemption that we see unfolding. In our text, we see that especially popping out in verse 28. We see this brief but really significant phrase. In, in this case, we find it on the lips of God's prophet, a nameless prophet, speaking directly kind of in the first person for God, speaking to Ahab in this instance, saying this, Says, and you, Ahab, shall know that I am the Lord. Ahab, you shall know that I am the Lord. It's a, it's a very um, personal and very, uh, uh, well, uh, let me say it this way. It's, it's a statement of guarantee. Right? You shall know that I am the Lord. It's not, uh, you might possibly kind of come to know me at some point. It's an absolute statement, basically saying, the Lord saying to Ahab, hey, I'm going to do this thing, Ahab, this amazing thing, this incredible thing. I'm going to do it, and who I am will become really clear to you. 
who I am is going to be abundantly clear, so, so clear that any possible reasons you might still have in your brain for like kind of having some misconceptions, some bad assumptions about who I am, those are going to be knocked out. Like those are going to be eliminated, those will be null and void. You're going to know who I am because of how I'm going to act in your life and in your circumstances and for the people of Israel. It'll be super clear and you'll have no more excuses for saying that, you know, oh, I, d I didn't know. And so, with that as a little bit of background, for the next few moments, what I want us to do and focus our attention on is uh, to focus in on three particular characters in the drama that we're seeing unfold here and to see how, uh, how God himself is working to kind of correct and replace bad assumptions with truth about who he is, to replace falsehood with the reality of who God is. How is God doing that in this text and in the lives of particular individuals? For us, I think this is relevant and it connects to us personally because, it, you know, the call of the scriptures, as I've alluded to already, is a call to into relationship with our God. It's a call to know him. Uh, one of the verses that popped in my mind as kind of a side point application this week as I was thinking about all these themes was uh, God's word in Jeremiah chapter 9 verse 24 and it's this place I think I might have it on the slide yeah there it is Jeremiah or the Lord through Jeremiah says but let him who boasts boast in this what that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth for in these things I delight declares the Lord it's a good thing to know the Lord to, to desire to understand him. And it's one of the reasons God gives us his word, right? So that we would know him rightly, interact with him rightly, worship him truly. So, and that breaks down, right? We, we have to break down our bad assumptions to do that. So, so we'll dive in. If, if I'm, am I making sense? Are you still with me? Okay, some nods. All right, so we'll dive in. Uh, false Bad assumption number one, case one here, is this. The case of Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria and, and his servants. We see, especially in verses 23, 24, and 25 of the text, and the, and the Ben, uh, I'm sorry, the bad assumptions here are actually, is not just one, there's actually two uh, assumptions that are, that are wrong for Ben-Hadad and the Syrians here. Uh, number one, we see that uh, the 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 Syrian worldview is one that is assuming that the God of Israel is not just one singular God, but is actually kind of like a, uh, a pantheon, like a plurality, right? The Syrians are assuming polytheism, basically. In, we can see this in the way that e even that opening verse, verse 23, alludes to this. It says, And the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are gods of the hills. And talking about Israel. So, right out, you know, the gate, right out of the, you know, first thing, we see that the, the Syrians and Ben-Hadad have this idea that, oh, like, the, the people of Israel have multiple gods, just like everyone else, all the other nations, right? That, that's what they assume. 
they don't have or they haven't read, you know, God's word, like the Pentateuch. They haven't read Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. They, they don't have that information. So they're just making this assumption based on the cultural climate of their day. They, they haven't read the, the creation accounts in Genesis or, you know, the Ten Commandments that allude to the fact that God is this one God over, over all the earth, but, you know, starting with Israel. Syrians don't know this. So they assume polytheism to be the reality for Israel. Secondly, though, and a little bit more pointedly, kind of on, on target, Ben-Hadad ben and his whole crew also make a kind of a geographic assumption when it comes to power. What, what's going on here is that they assume that uh, the gods of Israel are geographically limited and thus, there are places where they are less powerful and other places where they are more powerful, right? So they assume that, and, and they're really, they're banking on this pretty hard. They're hoping it to be the case that as they just got their clocks cleaned by Israel, you know, apparently in the mountains, they're thinking, okay, uh, we just, we had round one, you know, Syrians versus Israel, Syrians lost big time in the mountains but they think okay let's not repeat that but let's try again let's try in a different you know geographic context because maybe their gods you know they're they they're really strong in the mountains but the plains the valleys you know that's where they're weak we'll get them there so they, their their assumption is the god of israel is limited is geographically constrained of course, what we ultimately end up finding in the story as it unfolds, especially if we, look, we look at verses 26 through 30, is it doesn't pan out. <laughs> this is, you know, turns up out to be a very bad assumption on the part of the, the Syrians, right? Because once again, Israel very handedly defeats this enemy army and Ben-Hadad. I, I love the, the imagery and the language of the text that we see, uh, where is it? I think it's uh, verse, yeah, verse 27, where it, it describes uh, the people of Israel were, were like two little flocks of goats versus like this whole ocean of Syrians. And yet even though like numerically and like on paper, the Syrians should have wiped out the people of Israel and their army, that was not the case. Why? the God of Israel is not geographically constrained. He is the God of all the earth. He is the creator of the ends of the earth, the maker and the sustainer of everything. And he, his power is not limited. His presence is not limited. And that doesn't end up boding well for that, that, assumption, uh, that Assyrian assumption, forgive me. So that's that's bad assumption case number one of this, the Syrians and Ben-Hadad, what they're thinking. They make this polytheism error, and then they make this kind of limited power error. And the Lord ultimately corrects this and says, this is where we, we started, verse 28. Because the, the Syrians have said, the Lord is the God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore, the Lord says, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, Ahab, and you, Ahab, shall know that I am the Lord. That's the first assumption and how the Lord corrects it, speaks it, the truth. 
Second one, second bad assumption here to keep rolling. Uh, case, it's the case of actually Ahab himself, the king of Israel. And although Ahab, as an Israelite himself, especially as the king of Israel, he should know better. But as we see, we look in the text, verses 32 through 34, we see that Ahab is assuming badly for his part that he, on his own accord, gets to be one who can kind of dictate the foreign policy of Israel just however he thinks best, right? Basically, he's thinking that he can just say, hey, I'm going to make peace with who I want to make peace with. I'm going to go to war with who I'm going to go to war with, and that's okay because, you know, I'm the king, right? And what what we fail to see in this moment, what we don't see Ahab doing is seeking the face of the Lord or seeking a word from God's prophet to say, hey, uh, what's, what's the play here? Ahab's bad assumption is that he can just, like, I'm going to go with my instincts here. I'm just going to go with my gut. We're going to make peace here. We're going to make war here. It's all good, right? We see, especially after the aftermath of this, this great uh, defeat, the second now great defeat of the Syrians and this great victory for Israel, Ahab uh, very quickly embraces Ben-Hadad, makes a covenant even, the, the text tells us, with this man. And, and, you know, I mean, do you guys remember last week? Like, what kind of a guy is Ben-Hadad? Like, is he a guy that, you, like, you want, you want a peace accord with? Is he a guy you want to be friends, you want to be buddy-buddy with? Like, remember, it was like it, it, the start of the chapter, he says, hey, I'm going to take your best wives and your best children. Like, you know, all, he, all the stuff you love, I'm going to take it. You know, I'm, it's like this huge power of play. He's, he's basically this huge bully. He, now he's tried to come after Israel, attacked him twice, killed him twice. And, and on the turn of a dime, Ahab just decides, yeah, let's be friends. To me, this doesn't sound like wise foreign policy, but it's what he does, because for whatever reason, that's his gut instinct, and he doesn't slow down to seek the Lord, or to seek the Lord's prophet, to seek a word from God on this matter. It's a bad assumption, and ultimately, it's not going to go well. The text tells us what is ultimately God's perspective on this action from Ahab kind of independent striking out as kind of the, the you know, chief of the foreign policy of Israel. We read uh, verse 42 of the text right towards the end. God's perspective is this. He says, because you, Ahab, have let go out of your hand the man whom I had devoted to destruction, therefore, here's the consequence, your life shall be for his life, your people for his people. In other words, Ahab here assumed an authority that was not his to assume. And the price he's going to pay, the consequence for that is it's life for life. It's, it's people for people. And that's the second case of a bad assumption that the Lord corrects. He comes in and says, this is Ahab as the king You know, you're the king, but I'm the king. You don't just get to fly solo. Thirdly, finally, bad assumption, case study number three here. 
We have the case of the man who, uh, this is the way I thought to say it because this is kind of a weird one. The case of the man who refuses to strike. Sounds weird, but we see this in the text in verses 35 and 36. It's this moment where there's, we read, uh, there's this certain man of the sons of the prophets who is working on kind of setting up basically kind of like a dramatized parable to kind of show Ahab and highlight for Ahab that he, he's, you know, he, uh, he's got it wrong, basically, that he has taken a misstep, that he has erred in his ways when it comes to the stuff we were just talking about in terms of like just kind of dictating um, what Israel was going to do and who they were going to make a covenant with on his own right. Right? So to make this kind of dramatized parable work, it's kind of like how, you know, the prophet Nathan comes to David and kind of tells David this story about, you know, the, you know, this little sheep and, and all of a sudden David gets, in, you know, indignant and says, oh, you know, the man who did this must die. And then Nathan flips it and says, you're the man. And all of a sudden David's like, oh, no, right? It's kind of a similar thing here where the prophet is kind of setting up kind of a trap so that suddenly uh, Ahab is going to realize, I'm busted. I'm in trouble here, right? But to make all this work, to kind of set the stage, the prophet wants to give off this vibe that he was a soldier in the war and that he's been wounded. And in order to kind of play this out well, he needs to actually be wounded. And so we're actually told that this actually isn't the prophet's idea. This is God's idea, right? We're told that this came as, as a command of God. And so the bottom line here is basically this. God commands that this man be struck. This man seeks another man to strike him. That man refuses to do the strike. The consequence is once again dire in this situation. Specifically, if, you're still, if I haven't totally lost you, if you're still tracking with me, what is the dire consequence for this man who refuses to strike as we see it in the text? Yeah, lions, right? Dire consequence. He's struck down. He is killed by a lion. So, so what was the bad assumption here? Th this man who refused to do this strike, what was his, his assumption that turned out to be really bad because he got eaten by a lion? The way I see it, it's that he thought that he could just ignore the command of God. God said to strike, even though that seems weird. Okay, just randomly strike this guy. But if God says to do it, right, this is the word of the Lord through the prophet. It's the word of the Lord. You obey. So he refuses. He, he assumes he can just refuse to do that and everything's going to be okay. Apparently not. So how does God correct in this situation? How does God make himself more fully known and kind of replace the falsehood with truth? Well, in my mind, it, it's, it's through this dire situation. It's the Lord underscoring through this really drastic consequence of this death by lion that what we do to God, what we do with God's word in response to God's word is extremely significant. Let me, let me crystallize that a little bit more. W how we respond to God's word shows how we respond to God. Right? Just like as, you know, if my, my children 
If I'm the dad, I, I am the dad. Um, not theoretical. <coughs> Got three of them. Um, you know, the parents, I, I'm laying, I say, okay, you know, go clean your room. That's my word. Go clean your room. They ignore my words. They're ignoring me, right? So what we do with someone's word, we do with them. We respect and honor their word. We respect and honor them. We disregard, we disobey their word. We, we disregard and disobey them. There's, a, there's this intimate tie between us as human beings and the words that we speak. And so, I think the application for us becomes a deep reflection on how we are responding to the word of God. Are we those who are seeking to treasure God's word and store it up in our hearts, seeking to obey it? If we're doing those things, we are, we are honoring, we are treasuring God himself. If we're doing the opposite, we are disregarding God. If, if, we, uh, if we make much of God's word, that, that is what scripture describes as abiding. We're called to abide in God's word. And Jesus invites us to abide in him. And it's through his word that we do that. Ultimately, I think this is the cure to all of our bad assumptions. Is to dive into the word of God. To know who he is, we must study the scriptures. Ultimately, if, if we look back at this whole story as it's unfolding here, we can view the whole narrative from this lens of how people are responding or not responding to God's word. In the Old Testament, God's word comes, you know, through the prophets. For us, it's, it's primarily, first and foremost, through the scriptures. But we see Ben-Hadad and the Syrians, they didn't even know. Like, they had no category for God's word, right? That, that they thought there was polytheism going on in Israel. So they, they didn't have the scriptures at all. They, they were ignorant. A guy like Ahab and this man who refused to strike, they, they had, they knew more. So I think there's higher consequences for them because they were responsible for what they knew. As we kind of bring this home in some closing thoughts for application for us, I think there's, there's two points that this gets really uh, real and kind of calls us for, for, calls a response out of us, I should say. And kind of the impacts, first and foremost, are this. I think there is a call to humility here through this text. And the humility is that, uh, you know, God and his word are uh, holy and righteous and good. My assumptions, my gut instincts are not inherently holy and righteous and good. We need to check our assumptions and we need to continue to be uh, looking to know God through his scriptures and that we might kind of be corrected by God's word. And really that kind of flows right into the second point, which is it's kind of almost one and the same from the same angle. There's also a call here to just continual, continually be students of God's word. I think there's, there's an invitation here to be lifelong learners of the scriptures. God reveals himself in and through Old Testament, New Testament, and we have it at our fingertips. The 
very end of this passage, uh, verse 43, we see that uh, it concludes by, uh, we, you know, well, Ahab, the judgment falls on Ahab, and the final word about Ahab here is that he is vexed and sullen. You know, these are not words that we uh, typically use, but basically, I mean, it's, it's scripture's conveying that uh, he's kind of bitter. He, he's, he's resentful. He doesn't like that God's judgment has fallen on him. He just wanted to do his own thing, kind of go his own way by his own intuition. God says, no, it's not going to fly, Ahab. So he's, he's angry. For us, thankfully, praise the Lord, that does not have to be the end of the story. We are not those who need to, to end our lives or end our interactions with the Lord being vexed and sullen. Because the reality is God's word and relationship with the Lord is open to us. There is always, uh, you know, his mercies are new every morning, right? Even, even Ahab, or I'm sorry, even Ben-Hadad and the Syrians knew that, what, what did they say? Uh, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful to him. So there is mercy with our God, and in the primary call of God in his word, job number one is repent and believe. Repent and believe. And if we repent and believe and look to Jesus as our Savior, we don't need to be vexed and sullen. We get to be those who are grateful and amazed at who God is, at the provision he has made for us in Jesus Christ. As, as the way he gives us his word to continue to know him and to have sweet relationship with him. To sometimes be deeply challenged by him. So I think that's the note that I want to end on. In the gospel, we get to be those who are grateful and amazed. Not, not the vexed and sullen. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this opportunity we have to study your word. And Lord, that you are continually revealing yourself and growing us in relationship to you through your word, through the scriptures. God, I pray that you would also continue to allow us to know you as we go to this table which you have ordained and appointed. In Jesus' name. So friends, as uh, just alluded to in, in that prayer, um, talking about what it means to really know the Lord, know that he is God, this table is, is a place where that reality becomes concrete. The invitation of God to us becomes physical when we come to this physical table. These means that God has appointed, that Jesus commanded, for us to partake of perpetually until the day we see him again face to face. The juice, the wine representing his blood, the, the, the bread representing his body. And so I encourage you today to come partake, enjoy these elements as gifts of God's grace to you, opportunities for you to continue to abide, to know the Lord. He is with us in a sweet and spiritual way in this table. If you don't know what you believe about Jesus yet, you're not sure if he is who he claims to be in the scriptures, I invite you, encourage you even, not to partake of this table, not to partake of these things, but to rather work out and continue to work out that question. 
The first moment you say, yes, I'm in this table, well, first baptism, (laughs) and then this table is yours, right? Beautiful place where God's grace becomes physical and concrete. Uh, In terms of logistics, uh, same thing we'll always do. I'll have a a gluten-free down this aisle. We'll have regular bread down the other two. It's all juice. Um, And uh, I encourage you, we'll take the elements, take them back to your seats, continue to hold on to them, and we'll partake all together uh, in a few moments once the song comes to an end. So um, I'm going to pray for us, and I would invite uh, Josh and the other elders and elder wives who are available to come on forward and help me serve. That would be wonderful. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, God, you are good, and this table is one of the ways that we know that. May it minister to us powerfully in this time, preach a sermon to our senses. Amen.